Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. So, hey, I guess, and welcome to the whatever this thing is, right? It's a podcast now. I guess it is. We're chopping it up, stripping it down, using parts elsewhere, (laughs) right? Yeah, what are you talking about? Uh, well, um, Chuck, I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. But uh, you and I went to SiriusXM headquarters in New York. That's right. In their studios. Uh-huh. And we got like 50 Stuff You Should Know listeners to show up. Yep. And they sat there and watched us do a live radio show, live to tape. Yeah. And it was about July 4th. It, it was, was about America. Totally fine and neato. And uh, I kind of like this live show thing. It's just, I like it's like, you know, it's a little weird at first. Right. <laughs> but I think we got over that in the first few minutes. Uh, I, I never did. No? Plus, also, I, I don't know if you'll be able to pick this up, but starting at about the 30-minute mark, I became <laughs> almost overwhelmed with the um, need to go to the bathroom. Yeah, you told me this afterwards. I had to so badly, and yeah. I was just holding it because I drank so much water, remember? I was nervously uh, I drinking that. water, which is like the dumbest thing you can do before you're about to sit down and, per- and for perform two for two hours. Yeah, So uh, I guess listen out for that as we present this two-parter episode, which helps for us because uh, one of our listeners sent in some beer and Jerry's refusing to do anything for this week because she's mad at us because we didn't share it with her. So this is good for us, right? Oh, yeah? Yeah. I didn't know that went down. This is why we're doing this. Okay. We're releasing this for this reason. All right, so... Without further ado, uh-huh. we got the Stuff You Should Know, Does America, with special guest Wyatt Cenac, mm-hmm. and uh, Hallie Haglin of The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. That's right. And Joe Garden and Joe Randazzo of The Onion, and Jill Morris uh, of The Onion as well. Yep. So let's begin, Chuck. Let's take you back to July 1st, 2011. The heady days starting now. Right now. Right now. <laughs> I wanted to change that music at the last minute to the Elvis. Josh said it's too late. And then I was going to walk in like Elvis backwards. And then Hallie said, you might trip. And that might be funny, but I didn't do it. You good? You ready? Yeah. So, uh, hey, and welcome to the uh, live radio show. I'm Josh. This is Chuck. You take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have the stuff you should know. That's that was, good. That was special for the radio special. You didn't even tell me about that. No. You never told me anything. I jotted it down. It's right here. Yeah. That looks fresh, too. Yeah. The ink is rubbing. Yeah. You just came up with the facts of life bit. Yeah. In the moment. So, so we're doing this a little different, Chuck, than normal. Usually yes. Usually it's just you and me. Now we have 50-ish pairs of eyes on us while we're doing this. That's more than 100 eyes. Yes. Um, 50-ish. Yes. You round up, huh? Uh-huh. Um, and then we also have some special guests that we're doing for this uh, Stuff You Should Know About America live show, right? Friends from The the Daily Show? Yeah, with Jon Stewart. Right, we have, well, Jon Stewart's not here. Yeah, but you, that's the full title, I'm told. You have to say it. <laughs> oh, is that right? That's what Hodgman told me. Oh, okay. Um, so our friends from The Daily Show with Jon Stewart yes. include Wyatt Cenac, right, who you all know and love. It's here for Wyatt. And uh, one of the esteemed Daily Show writers, Hallie Haglin. How are you, Haley? Uh, Hallie is also a performer at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. And if y'all are fans of that, then you're pretty smart and cool because it's awesome. Exactly. So, well, well put. It's tough um, And then we have friends from The Onion as well, America's Finest News Source, which just celebrated its thousandth issue last really? week. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's been around for a while. Uh, we have the editor... Joe Randazza. Say hi, Joe. We have uh, one of the head writers, Joe Garden. And we have another writer, Jill Morris, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Jill. 
So we have quite a lineup here today. Yeah. yeah. Joe's, Joe's lovely wife, Anita, is sitting in front of us. Yeah. Hey, Anita. My lovely wife is sitting in front of us. Yeah. And, and uh, then a bunch of strangers. Yeah. <laughs> That's not quite true. We have friends here as well. We do. And thank you, strangers and friends, for coming out for this. This is, uh, this is really flattering. So thanks a lot. Thanks. Hopefully it will be fun, right? Yes. You want to get started? Yes. So, Are we supposed to wear these? I mean, you can if you want. I don't like that. We don't, uh, we don't normally wear. This is like behind the scenes. We, we usually do have headphones, and apparently we're the only ones who don't wear them at, stu- at Stuff You Should Know, at How Stuff Works. That's right. Yeah. We're so, rebels. I don't think we should change now, Chuck. I just don't want to get them sweaty. <laughs> okay, so let's start. Um, we're going to start. We, we recently did a, a podcast on America's First Murder. I think it came out yesterday, right? Yeah. Who was it? Uh, John Billington. That's right. We just gave away the ending. That's right. <laughs> um, he, uh, he, we, we were digging around, like, doing research for this podcast, um, and uh, I don't know how many of you have heard it or not. Hopefully very few because we ripped off some of the uh, content from it for this part. But um, one of the things we found was that um, John Billington, who was a uh, Puritan and lived in Plymouth Colony, um, w- when we started digging around in Plymouth Colony, there's this whole seamy underbelly. Yeah, Puritan. We should do that. Yeah, yeah. The the Puritans. Um, that that there was this whole life of crime that like we had no idea existed, and so we started digging further and further, and we came to realize like America is kind of this like crazy place, right? Yeah. For a reason, it's been built like uh, echelon by echelon upon crazy upon crazy. Right, right. So, so we figured we we just kind of uh, go over some of the the um, factors that led to the craziness that that was taking on the British, right? Yes. And uh, we had our good friend Wyatt Sinek come by to to talk to us about that, right? Hey, Wyatt, you want to come sit with us? He just looks surprised. <laughs> <Let's> see, <buddy. laughs> Wyatt time. Sinek, everybody. I'm gonna wear the headphones. You gonna wear them? Because I'm a professional. <laughs> These headphones were probably worn by Bridget the Midget on a Howard Stern show. Yeah, you see that door is tightly sealed. Yeah. I asked if I could take a peek since no one's here this week, and they said, no, no, no. No, no one peeks. Yeah. No, they keep Baba Booey in there. He's hermetically it's on, sealed. It's on scratching at the yeah. glass. Like, let me out. Yeah. Um, so, why, as, as I'm sure everyone here knows, you are... Um, formally trained in uh, colonial American history. Uh, You have a doctorate in it, right? I I do. I have a doctorate from uh, the University of Hawaii. (laughs) Go uh, Warriors, right? At Arkansas. Rainbow Warriors? No, it's the University of Hawaii at Arkansas. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Go uh, Warrior Bats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, that's why we invited you you by here today. Are you familiar with some of the... uh, the the senior underbelly of American history, or are you just kind of part and parcel to the, you know, the the um, textbook stuff? I know the textbook stuff that you know, and I know the stuff that they talk about in like reality shows when it's like, oh yeah, you're gonna go live in like a 1800 house, or like you're gonna go live in like a, <laughs> right. you know. So I assume it's it was like that where there were a cam- there were camera crews following you everywhere <laughs> and. <laughs> We just haven't found those tapes yet. Right. Or I assume they're three-quarter inch tapes, so that's probably part of the problem. <laughs> Nobody has a three-quarter inch machine anymore. Right. right. Yeah. Well, we're going to, uh, I guess, open your eyes a little bit then. All right. Are you cool with that? Sure. So, yeah. um, Chuck, one of the first things that we uh, that we figured out, um, I guess, what caught our attention is um, the 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 criminal element that was in Plymouth Colony with the. The Puritans, right? Yes, and by criminal we mean uh, specifically uh, <laughs> buggery. Are you familiar with buggery? <laughs> Not on an intimate level, <laughs> but I do know what I do know what buggery is. I they, should point out real quick that there was an email exchange last week, a real email exchange where Josh had written this out and it said, you know, buggery is a very polite term for bestiality. It's like, yeah, and I had to send him an email. And said, hey, uh, dude, by the way, buggery is also sodomy. I, I have the email still. It's, and just, fra- it's yeah. framed and on my wall. I'm just curious if we have uh, those people at work that like spy on your email. All it literally said was, by the way, buggery is also sodomy, Josh. <laughs> well, I just wanted you to know that. I also like the idea that like uh, that in the time when buggery was popular, that perhaps if you were a registered buggerer, 
<laughs> that like somebody was like, "Ooh, gross! You're you mess around with animals," and someone would get indignant and like, "No, no, I do not. I am a sodomist." <laughs> a very proud one. Yeah, very true. Very true. how dare? No, I would never do that to an animal. They're beautiful creatures, especially that one. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, maybe I would. All right, all right, you got me. I'm an all-around buggerist. Uh, there was an actual buggerist that we came across, right? His yes. His name was Thomas Granger. And um, can you read uh, Old English? Uh, sure. So this is this is a this is a quote from the um, the uh, court records of Plymouth Colony. I think in like 1631. Do you do you mind taking it? It's uh, right here. Sure. Just read that. Yes. Is this a test to see if I know how to read? Yeah. Read Old English. Boy, that would be really embarrassing. And the, the U's yeah. are V's. Oh, is that what that is? Okay. Uh, do you want me to read it in Old English? Sure. Uh, oh, yeah, of course. Thomas Granger, <laughs> late servant Sir Louis Brewster of Duxborough, was this court... That's how everyone used to sound in America. <laughs> Was this court indicted for buggery with a mare, a cow, two goats, diver sheep, two calves, and a turkey? And was found guilty and received sentence of death by hanging until he was dead. Right. So that's what happened to you if you were caught. I guess this guy is probably like the worst serial buggerist. That Plymouth Colony produced. That you know of. Yeah, but that right. I could find record of. Yeah. But uh, what, what were you going to say? I was going to say, it does seem like, okay, so there's a mare, a cow, two goats, some sheep, <laughs> some calves, uh, which I don't know if they're related to the cow, uh, <laughs> and a turkey. Like, it does, and I was saying this to you earlier, uh, for whatever people want to say about our technological distractions that we have, those may be the only things keeping us from having sex with animals. <laughs> That's, this is clearly, these are bored people that are just like, oh, I'm bored and there are no singles bars. There's just that barn. There's that barn and this groin. Let's make something happen. Also, I'm just going to say this. I'm going to throw this out there. The turkey, how do we know the turkey didn't bugger the man? <laughs> I think that's an excellent point. Yeah. But uh, so Thomas Granger, right, he's he's hanged till dead, as you just read. Um, and uh, he, he got oh, it. So how he would have you believe. Right. Well, that's that's the court records. That's what they say, right? Yeah. But the ghost of Thomas Granger <laughs> right. is still around. He's right? out in the barn still. Yeah. Well, it's like that movie. What was the movie where the guy who got electrocuted to death and then like. Shocker? Was that Shocker? No, no, no. Yeah. Did he come back to life? Yeah. Or the Green Mile. No. The Green Shocker. Okay. Yeah. Ooh, no, no, no. <laughs> you don't want to talk about that. Oh, okay. It's a clean show. Oh, I... I no, dude, we just... We've been talking about bestiality for like seven minutes. Yeah, that's true, yeah. That's true. Yeah, well, it's, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. No, it's good. You did, the, you did the old English voice and everything. Yeah, so. I'm sidetracking here. So, well, the, the point is that there was crazy crime in, in Plymouth Colony. Are, are you seeing that now? The Puritans? Sure, right? yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh, he got off kind of harshly because he was a, a pretty <laughs> pretty big into the, the buggery. Other Chuck, people would Chuck be... Chuck enjoyed the... He yeah, got like off kind of harshly. I tried not to laugh so hard. No. <laughs> there was something in the air and everybody needed to release it. I think we're all more appreciative of it now that we've gotten it out there, yes. Right, right. But he... So he, he was hanged. Other people were put into stocks, right? If you uh, were a gossip, you would be dunked on a log... Is, is one one type of punishment. So there's a lot of crime. There's a lot of punishment, right? Weird punishment for weird crime. Yeah. Exactly. Like gossiping was one that you that would get you dunked on a log in a lake. That seems like a weird, yeah. Which I imagine you'd be tied to the log or else they'd just put you on a log and dunk you and you'd just fall off and be fine, swim back to shore and be like, can I go back home now? But again, it goes to that idea of boredom where it's like, we need to punish this person. Yeah, right. Well, you know, you can put them in the stocks. Like, right. Oh, that's, oh, that's boring. Like, Well, no, with the stocks, like apparently people would come, like they, they'd close school down and people would come from surrounding villages to, Children would to mock point them. and laugh. Yeah. yeah. And they would have a sign that said what their crime was, obviously, sort of like the scarlet letter. 
So and, uh, being yeah. in the stocks was like being a stand-up comedian. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you Basically. would sort of you'd talk about all of your problems, or right. in this case, they'd put a sign up of all your problems, and people would laugh at them. I think there's less money in stand-up, though, as yeah. I understand it. Yeah. So um, apparently finding a house is a really, really difficult thing. Right. It, it was very difficult. If, like they lived in caves originally? Yeah. Did you know this? I did know this, that they lived, that there was, some, there was a lot of cave living. So, yeah. So they, so they get to the new world and they're like, well, I, I don't know how to build a house. I thought you knew how to build a house. And they had to live in caves for a while until they figured out how to build a house. And then the houses they built were um, really crude and rudimentary. Like yeah. they, were, they were thatch covered in mud. With sticks, with maybe a hole in the in the top, for so you fire. don't die. Sure, right. Which apparently still kills two million people a year. Did you know that? I had to bring me down. Having a, <laughs> having a hole in your roof kills two million. people. No, not not, not having a hole in your roof. Yeah, particulate matter. That's, a, that's a real fact. Yeah, it really is. So wait, so you're saying like if you live in an apartment because there's no hole in your apartment, <laughs> you're you're, you're dead. dead, right? <laughs> only only if, if you're, you're in your apartment in right now, get out. <laughs> Don't cook anything with dung in your apartment. And that's actually... That's that's probably good to know, just in general. That's why people die, though. It's sad. It's not funny. No. But, and and, um, and apparently in the colonies, too, you had to keep your fire going because no one had matches, right? Right. So uh, if you let your fire go out, you had to go to the neighbor's house and borrow a a charcoal. Yeah, and this sounds... I don't know. People are living in caves. They don't have fire. It sounds like... uh, Afghanistan? Yeah. I thought they were a little more advanced than that. And, you know, it was apparently a real bummer because you had to start your own fire. And I don't know. I don't don't buy it. There's something, though, about, like, they had to keep their fire going, like, all the time that you look at just how far we have or have not come and that they wasted a lot of energy back then and we still do it today. (laughs) Thanks, forefathers. Very true. But the hole in the roof uh, we bring up because it would also, you know, it's kind of crappy. It would let in rain and, and snow and sure. other drastic elements. Right. So uh, the one guy who could build the houses, Thomas Granger, I guess, wasn't around. Right. Well, so he, they, was, he was dead. He was dead. So they had to find. Uh, out. Once they got sick of the caves, they had to find. <laughs> That's where that term comes from. <laughs> yeah, that tribe called Quesong bugging out is all. About, oh, there was wow. a New York animal sexing scene that, <laughs> oh, they were, it was a warning to people, like, look, you don't want to be bugging out, <laughs> because they will hang you to death. That's right. And hang, death by hanging until you are dead, which yeah. I thought was a little weird. Uh, so they, they eventually did get houses, though, because there were these people that maybe you've not heard of called Indians that lived in this country. And uh, we did a nice job of coming over and killing them with disease thanks to, uh, was it DeSoto that brought over the pigs? He was one of them. But, yeah, DeSoto brought over like 300 pigs. He brought to, 300 pigs. To eat. To eat. But he just made them walk around until he'd kill them and eat them. Oh, because you can't really pack a lunch back then. Right. Well, I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. It makes sense for yeah. sure. But so, they spread like pox. Yeah, so the pigs killed the Indians, and then they were like, Hey, now we got a place to live. Yeah. Look at all these awesome Indian huts. It, t- it took them a little while to figure it out, but then they, so they were. That's the first example of gentrification. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah that, was, that was the Williamsburg, Brooklyn of, uh, of colonial life. So um, we've got cave living. We have a lot, of, uh, a lot of abandoned dead Indian houses, right? Right. The Puritans um, we've now uh, agreed are the first hipsters. Right, right. Yeah. I'm sure they also had twirly mustaches. Right, so. yeah. I think they did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then uh, you pretty much have to make anything that you, you know, want, right? Sure. So they didn't bring anything over with them. So you had to, like, churn butter. Sure. You had to uh, plant crops. You had to sow crops. Is that sow? Is that the same thing as plant? Harvest? Reap? Yes. Sow and reap. Or you sow seeds. Right. And you reap what oh, you yeah. sow. Yes. Right. Um, and yep. then you fear the reaper. Right. <laughs> you, you have to uh, make your candles, 
Um, and pretty much like anything. So it is everything that hipsters in Williamsburg do. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> like I think we're uncovering a thread here that like I, I didn't realize was in this. Yeah. Little if you want to see colonial America, that's why it is, it, that is colonial Williamsburg. It is, it's like, not in Virginia. Yeah, that's, wow, look at that. It all came around. <laughs> the brain is working. Not feeling well in the tummy, but the brain functioning. <laughs> He just turns it on like that. I know. It's amazing. Um, and then so you've got all this work, right? You've got indentured servants at first. Yeah, they came over with a promise of land. Right. Like, hey, I'll come over there and work for you for, you know, four years if you give me a, a parcel. Right. And right. Then, it's like AmeriCorps. Right. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> and then they, they ran out, right? They yeah, they ran, ran out of servants. I think, I think most of them got hung. And then, uh, just like AmeriCorps. <laughs> <laughs> somebody figured out that if you left, um, Massachusetts and just followed the trade winds, it took you right to West Africa. So apparently we started to go to West Africa and get all sorts of free labor. And like between 1450 and 1900, like 11 million people were captured and brought to the Americas, right? That's one way to say it. Yeah, that's one way to put it. Um, so we've got now everything in place, right? We have, Crazed, like um, animals starved. Hipsters. Pe- pe- hipsters <laughs> running around. Sure. These are the colonists with the will to carve out you know, the, their place in the wilderness. You've got um, uh, – we have slave labor. We have dead Indians. Um, and we have p- butter churning, right, the whole thing. Everything. Pigs. Just, it's just a really rotten life for everybody Buttery. involved, right? Yeah. But out of all this came like these cities around 1700 – a little after that, you've got cities like Boston and Philadelphia, and they were starting to get nicer and nicer, and people started to take a little more pride in them. And um, all of a sudden, the British start flexing their muscles, right? And uh, I think because of the niceness of the cities, you, you have this a certain level of resentment among the colonists of being told what to do. Like you're, you're familiar with the Stamp Act. That was a big one. The Tea Act that led to the Boston Tea Party. Okay. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize that was all forms of paper at the time. Is that right? The Stamp Act? Yeah. Yeah. Like any piece of paper you had to pay a tax on. They, they just didn't like that. Really? Jerks. Yeah. It's kind of a weird tax if you think about it. The tea tax really drove them crazy, though. And then you had to uh, quarter British soldiers, which meant, like, let them stay in your house, which is kind of a thing, too. Which is nice if you need, like, a roommate or something. <laughs> sure. It is. Like, yeah. Right. I'm kind of lonely. and Right. There's no TV back now. So. Or you need, like, an extra hand around the house, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Hey, British soldier, would you mind grabbing me a Can beer you get that out, out of the, the non-existent the... fridge? <laughs> Can <laughs> that, you out of that pig? <laughs> My arm's about to fall off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the, so I, I guess you're right. I think you make a pretty good point that, like, it, quartering British soldiers wasn't that bad. So it was the taxes, I think, that really got them. And um, one of the things that the colonists did was to um, – Basically, tar and feather tax collectors. Are you familiar with this process? Tarring and feathering? Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah they still do it in Williamsburg. Do they? Yeah. <laughs> Just bring it all back to Williamsburg. It's the only thing I know. So, so it's, a, it's a pretty horrific process, right? I mean, like, to, to get the tar onto somebody's skin. Well, because that boils because it's got to be hot. Right. Sure. Right. And then yeah. the feathers is just adding insult to injury. Yeah. I'm sure at that point the feathers are probably not as bad. It was just like, oh, God, this tar. Oh, this is terrible. Right. Why are you putting feathers? I mean, that's fine. But really, <laughs> the tar, you could have just stopped at the tar. <laughs> Be perfectly honest. Oh, this hurts so much. Well, then the feathers might have provided a nice cooling effect. You right. never know. Yeah. And that was their little secret. They were right. like, no, not the feathers. <laughs> <laughs> I look like a chicken, but it's okay. Oh, thank you, hollow feather. Oh, the wind blows through you. So, well, but with or without the feathers, it was pretty awful, right, to have the hot tar. We're all agreed on that. Yeah, and you point out specifically in here that it's a lot worse than you might think. And I was like, it's actually, I thought to begin with it, it was probably pretty bad. Well, no, it's so cartoonish, you know, tarring and feathering somebody. I think Scooby-Doo did it before. It just seems like... You yeah. know, what's a big fine, deal? <laughs> but then you think, well, yeah, hot boiling tar. You ever been waxed? No. Yeah. That stuff's hot, too. Yeah. Well, then, because, yeah, because then you got to take it off, too. Right. And Taking it off is a problem. Yeah. And uh, it's like you use, like, turpentine, or which then that burns, which when you, and you maybe probably still have little chunks of tar on you for the rest of your life. Like, sure. you're never totally clean. Right. Which is also, like... A time when 
everybody had bed bugs. And, like, that was just a thing. Like, Williamsburg people... again? Yes. <laughs> That's Bushwick, actually. <laughs> Williamsburg is totally fine. We, we got rid of the bed bugs there. It's all in Bushwick, those jerks. Um... No, but that's, like, the weird thing when you think about, like, oh, yeah, it would be interesting to have a time machine and go back to that time and see people. No, it wouldn't. You've got, like, some guy who's still trying to, like, pick off tar on his arm and then is just, like, pockmarked all over from bed bugs and dysentery or whatever else, whatever horrible things. Like, people probably looked horrible. They, like, that's the one, like, everybody looks like mutants back then. <laughs> I'm just so. saying, no, it's not, it's really, it's just a point that when we look back at, at, you know, this time with, like, great affection, we should also realize, like, these are some awful-looking mutant people. Right. But I think I think that's the point. I think they were aware of this. They were aware that they had bed bugs. They, they were covered in hot tar. Um, they had to were pay they, taxes. Or did they just accept it as, like... Like, I feel like if all you know is bed bugs, you don't know a world without bed bugs. Like, you're just kind of oh, yeah, like, yeah. like if you if you showed up, if you got a time machine and showed up like you are, you know, with your fancy haircut and your exfoliated skin, right. people would be like, ah, oh, demon, oh, where are his bug bites? Oh. Clean of skin, out. Oh. He just pets that cow. He doesn't try to have sex with it. Ah! Burn him. Burn the witch. Then put him on a log and dunk him. See, but um, according to the um, the thing that I wrote, though, they were aware of it is the thing, right? <laughs> which is what drove them crazy to, to, you know, they were crazy enough to take on the British. Which, little known fact, by the way, right, this, this, um, this taxation that drove them to tar and feather people. Without representation. Well, that was the big problem. Sure. Yeah. So keep an eye on D.C. because they don't like it either, right? Sure. Um, but they, the, these taxes, most of them were repealed because of the tarring and feathering. Right before they were ever even enacted, but the colonists still decided, no, nah, we're going to revolt anyway. We really like Philadelphia; it's pretty nice. We're kind of tired of having you here, so they took on the world's largest military, the uh, controller of the largest empire from Canada to India. Canada. That was Canada. To India. Then? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, it's, it's been America's <laughs> hat for a long time, Chuck. All right. Um, and and they won, right? Sure, yeah. Using things like crazy guerrilla tactics. That was one way. Yeah. Um, and then so on, uh, what, I think June 11th to 18th, Chuck? Uh, June 11th to 18th. It only took that many days for TJ, Thomas Jefferson, who also uh, rewrote the Bible, as some of you may know from listening to our show. Yeah. He decided to take a break from that blasphemy to draft the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> and it only took him, what, seven days? Seven days. Wow. I mean, God created the earth in seven days. You'd think that, you know. You could... It's not that long of a document, really. Yeah. Just... yeah, it's, it's a one sheet, right? Yeah, you couldn't just bang that uh, out. Like, couldn't bang that out in a day, in an afternoon. <laughs> Seriously, right now, I bet all of us could write our own declarations of independence. <laughs> and... Just text it to one another. <laughs> yeah, we could just uh, we could tweet. If we, uh, if we have some time at the end, maybe everybody could just take a half hour to write their own declaration <laughs> and start reading them. I think that would be a nice thing. I think right. if everybody wrote their own Declaration of Independence, uh, and uh, then we'd all put on hats with little tea bags on them and go uh, to a tea party rally and say, "This is the this is the Declaration we should all follow. <laughs> this one, because I don't like the current one, because it got weird now somehow for some reason." Um, yeah, well, thanks, guys, for stopping by. Yeah, thanks for uh, you, uh, you got it. Yeah, yeah. Um, now let's get back to Midnight Sounds with Wyatt Snack. <laughs> Thank you, Wyatt Snack, everybody. Thank you, Wyatt. This is Stuff You Should Know About America from the Sirius XM Studios in New York City. Now more from Josh and Chuck. How about that? That went better than I thought. Did you know that? Well, we're winging it, you know. Are you that staying, Wyatt? <laughs> I mean, you don't have to. I know you're not, not feeling. Well. Yeah, Wyatt came in here like on his deathbed to do this. So goodbye, Wyatt. Thank you, everybody. Wyatt. I felt like he was gonna stay, and he then I ran him out. Kicked Wyatt out. <laughs> he very clearly. He told me he was leaving. It's not my fault. 
So, um, that's okay, right? <laughs> Jill seems to think so. Okay, thanks, Jill. <laughs> um, what do we have next, Chuck? We're gonna we're gonna talk about uh, America, right? Throughout this. That's right. And what's more American than baseball? Baseball. I'm holding up a baseball for those of you listening in three hours on Sirius XM. Uh, yeah, baseball. We thought about, hey, we should do something on apple pie and baseball and Chevrolet, but apple pie is kind of boring, and Chevrolet, we, you know, yeah. there's obviously implications there. We spent a little time looking for an apple pie recipe and realized that, yeah, unless we could have somebody actually making it. And Which makes for great Joe, radio, you know, I, as I understand yeah, it. Yeah, it, it kind of sunk in pretty quickly that you know, we weren't going to do the apple we'll pie We'll just pick the baseball. But, uh, well, Chuck, you're, you're out of the two of us. You're definitely the sports guy, right? Yes. So you want to you tell everybody about Mordecai Brown? Yes. Uh, this is the history and how to throw a curveball. We will teach you all this so you can go practice at home in Williamsburg. Uh, <laughs> the curveball actually was not invented by this guy, but it's definitely the better story of, of the three dudes who were kind of the first ones to throw a curveball. And uh, his name was Mordecai Peter Centennial Brown, later to be known as Mordecai Three Finger Brown, and that is foreshadowing. Right, and he was he was uh, named Centennial because he was born in 1876, right? I didn't know that. Yeah, is that extra research? Yeah. Nice. Well, no, I mean he was born a hundred years after the country's birth. It says. I figured it had something to do with that. Right. So he was named. He was a Centennial baby. That's right, and he was a uh, a baseball fan as a small child and wanted to play in the big leagues, the burgeoning big leagues. And he uh, didn't heed his parents' advice, and he put his hand, I would guess by accident, into a wood chipper? A food chopper. A food chopper. Feed chopper. Feed chopper. Yeah, there's a big difference. <laughs> One is for animals. And it, uh, what it did was it cut off, I believe, his index finger on his right hand. Yeah, uh, mangled that, the others. Mangled the others. And if that's not enough, a few uh, weeks later, I believe, while he was still healing, he slipped and fell and broke and mangled the rest of his fingers. He was a he was a rambunctious young man. So that's where he got the name Three Fingers, leaving him with three. And but he thumb. had his thumb. But they were very um they were very accurate back then. Yeah, the, because technically the thumb is not a finger. That's right. Did you see a picture of this guy's hand? No, is it messed up? It was messed up. He's got uh like the one finger that was mangled literally made like a right turn at the middle knuckle but this was all good news, so don't feel bad for Mordecai, Three Fingers Brown, because uh, what he did years later, he went to work in the coal mines of western Indiana, Yes, and this is not His good news either. improved. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he had a, a, a co-worker named uh, Legs O'Connell. I couldn't make this stuff up. His name was Legs O'Connell, and he was a former big leaguer, and he encouraged uh, Three Fingers. He was like, hey, you should go try and pitch with that. Funky looking hand, my friend. Yeah. It might do some weird stuff. And it did. What it did was it caused a uh, inordinate amount of topspin that was very frustrating at first until he realized that that topspin curved the ball. If he could control it, he could use it to his advantage. That's right. Yeah. Because think about it. He's he's missing. He's down uh, an index finger. So he's holding the ball like that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's going to produce topspin. And while I was researching this in, in our office, I kept... Like going like this. Is that what you were doing? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to figure out. I had no idea. Yeah. I thought you were having fits. No. But, uh, yeah, so we figured it out, right? Yeah, oh, big time. But I think we should – I don't know if he fully understood it, uh, Mordecai Brown, right? Three fingers. Three fingers. Um, he mastered it. Who knows if he fully understood it? Because it was only like 20 years earlier that a guy named uh, Gustav Magnus, right? came yes. up with this, this idea called the Magnus Effect that explains how a curveball works, right? That's right. So the physics of it are that the, the spin of the this? ball, sure, when you throw a, a, a curveball, and this is mainly for you guys here in the studio audience, me holding <laughs> up this baseball. This is an apple pie and how you make it. But when you, when you throw a curveball and you give it top spin, the seams hit the air, right? And the way they hit the air, um, the flow of air causes friction, right? That's right. So there's, like you said, an, an inordinate amount of friction on the, on the top of the ball. Because it's fighting the wind, essentially. Right. So it's higher pressure here. Lower pressure down below. Because it's going with the wind. Exactly. Um, so it creates kind of this whirlpool underneath the ball. And the Magnus force, which is the downward pull of it into that whirlpool, causes a ball to suddenly drop. Right? That's right. And Magnus figured this out because uh, I believe it was he saw a spinning 
sphere underwater and notice that if it was spinning in water, it moved, it was forced to move to the side. Yes. So he wasn't a baseball guy. No. This is maybe before baseball. Was it? Yeah. It was at like 1850. Do we have any baseball aficionados? Kubi? 1850, baseball, yes or no? <laughs> Not a baseball aficionado. <laughs> so uh, Magnus figured this out. Three Fingers figures this out. Three Fingers uh, played for the Cubbies in uh, 1903 and was a member, a very important member of the last World Series team the Cubs ever had in 1908. 1909. 1909? Yeah. He, he was the, that was their first pennant, and then they won consecutive pennants. Right. So the 1909 Cubs were the last ones to win the pennant, right? You're right, but he did not invent the curveball. It's just the best story. Uh, the curveball was generally credited to uh, Fred Goldsmith, and William Arthur Candy Cummings. And I don't know why I made air quotes. I don't know why he was named Candy, but he was apparently 5'8", 120 pounds. Uh-huh. So he may have just been a little plaything of a baseball player at the time. <laughs> Although he was probably big at the time. Right. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, but he was a giant, as we'll find out. <laughs> Foreshadowing. So um, the, when those guys were pitching, though, like 30 years before um, Three Fingers, like the, the curveball, or they call it the uh, skewball? The skewball, and pitchers were called twirlers. Right. Well, the twirlers who threw skewballs were thought <laughs> to be of ill repute because that was just kind of you yeah, know, that's against not fair. the rules. Yeah. You can't throw a ball that curves. Well, by the time Mordecai came around, it was, you know, his curveball was so sweet that they, uh, they let it in. Plus the hand, they kind of felt bad for him. That might have something to do with it. So, Chuck, there's also um, a, a lot of discussion that's been going on, and I, I don't know if it's still settled um, or not, but there's there, a lot of people wonder if the curveball actually exists or if it's an optical illusion, right? Yeah, I remember hearing about that a while ago, and so I supposedly thought, Supposedly it, it does exist. That phys- physicians or physicists, <laughs> totally different <laughs> than physicians. Physicists uh, have have concluded that yes, the curveball does exist. It's this Magnus effect. Nine out of ten dentists agree. Doing this right. <laughs> right. Um, but still, the 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 explanation of how uh, it could be an optical illusion is pretty interesting, right? Yeah, uh, this guy from the University of Pennsylvania, Arthur Shapiro of Bucknell University. I'm sorry, in Pennsylvania, is a real buzzkill of a guy because he tried to prove <laughs> that the curveball didn't exist, right? Right. And uh, he was wrong, right? Yeah, the, the, the way he saw it was that um, when you're standing there taking a pitch, the ball comes from your central vision, and then all of a sudden it hits your peripheral vision. And at about that time, it appears to just jerk suddenly, Break, which is why I you see batters jump back. Yeah. Um, w- w- that was his explanation for the optical illusion. But it looks like upon uh, recent camera work that there is such a thing as a curveball. It actually does move. Right, and it moves gradually, and the reason it appears to break so hard when you're in the batter's box is because you're not facing uh, the pitcher dead on. And I have a theory of the guys that have the more open stance, and the ladies, uh, maybe they hit curveballs a little bit better because they're facing the pitcher mound. I don't know if that's that's my own personal theory. That's that's fine. (laughs) That's good stuff. We'll go with that. You, uh, you. Who's your favorite curveball thrower? Oh, even better. What's your favorite name for a curveball esque pitch? Oh boy, I didn't know you were going to ask me this. I'm going to go with the big breaker. Big, I, I like the uh, fork ball. The fork ball? It's good. Yeah, because there's different methods right. of throwing the curveball. There's ball. the sinker. There's the slider. Yeah, and they all curve. There's the Japanese shuto. I never heard of that one. I hadn't either until this one. They play baseball in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I wanted to point out too that uh, the raised stitches uh, is why it curves more. And cheaters scuff up the the ball. That's why in the old days you would see pitchers uh, cheating with like an emery board in their pocket. Yeah. And they would scuff up the ball as much as possible. And it's also the reason why they switch out the baseball so much because the more the ball is scuffed up, the more it's gonna. Uh, curve and yeah. be unfair for the batters. There's some twirlers of ill repute out there still. <laughs> there are. Yeah. And so that's uh, curveballs. You got anything else? I think that's it, man. Nice. That's curveballs. <laughs> this is Stuff You Should Know About America from the Sirius XM studios in New York City. Now more from Josh and Chuck. And that was Jazz Hands. Right. That's a, that'll get people clapping every time. you got to clap you just go like this. You, somebody wants to fight you, go like this. They'll just start clapping. So up next, we have something I am really excited about because I have no idea what we're in store for, to be honest. I know that it is called 
Unsung American Exports. And I know our buddy Joe Garden from The Onion and Jill Morris are going to present it. And that's all I know. And ladies and gentlemen, Joe and Jill. Gosh, this is a... Am I? It, I don't actually mic? hear myself being projected because we're in this sort of aquarium-like uh, structure. It's called the fishbowl. The fishbowl? Yeah. I feel like the treasure chest in the fishbowl. <laughs> you are. <laughs> um, anyway, I would like to uh, to point out, uh, Josh and Chuck, do not know what I'm doing. This is uh, based on my own research, uh, and the, the pressure is really on. So I would like to encourage you all, if you find factual inaccuracies, which you probably will, uh, fact check gently. Don't uh, don't be angry. Just sort of say, "Hey, yo, you made a mistake," and. Uh, Correct, uh, corrected thusly. Uh, I also have another disclaimer. Uh, the following presentation contains information about sexually transmitted diseases, which we already sort of, I mean, I don't even know if I need this after I think why primed us all with that. Yeah, after the buggery. Uh, <laughs> and it also brings into doubt the question of a certain gift-bearing figure popular with children. You may wish to usher those under the age of 12 out of the room. <laughs> I'll wait. Are they gone? Okay, screw those kids anyway. Uh... Wow, Jerry's cracking up over there. She's she's not actually in the she's not actually here. Uh, I decided if I was going to do a stuff you should know event, I was just going to go waist deep uh, with it. I always wanted to say that. Um, so moving on, uh, I heard an interesting anecdote earlier this week. Um, I was at a party that featured a lot more taxidermy animals than I'm accustomed to seeing, and I met a I met a uh, a Pakistani documentarian, uh, and we struck up a conversation. And in the course of uh, in the course of our conversation, he found out I worked for the Onion, and he said, "Oh, here's something you really should know. In my hometown of Karachi, uh, there are you know there are a lot of uh, su- there are a lot of like uh, suicide bombings, uh, subject covered by uh, an earlier podcast, um, and a lot of uh, terrorist attacks. And uh, but the interesting thing is, the terrorists usually target KFC or Pizza Hut, and almost never target McDonald's." And I was really interested in this because when people think of American imperialist restaurant hegemony, uh, <laughs> they always think of the Golden Arches. I mean, it's everywhere. If I mean, I would have thought that somebody looking to attack a symbol of the United States would have just gone to the to McDonald's, no questions asked. Um, so I asked why the terrorist choice was KFC. He said that people just liked McDonald's more. <laughs> so. This is yet another way that I do not sympathize with terrorists. And we ate at, Mac- we ate at McDonald's before we came here. I did not. Oh, just uh, me. I, I'm sorry I threw you in with that. That's okay. I threw, uh, <laughs> you did. I, I used the Wi-Fi and sipped nervously uh, at an imaginary bottle of water. Uh, so I wasn't going to get kicked out. Um, but I haven't uh, – so anyway, I just like to point out I have not verified this fact through independent sources. Uh, so please use caution if you choose to repeat this fact. Uh, as it stands, I'm not even sure how you would research something like that. Uh, I tried Google searching uh, Karachi McDonald's bombings, uh, Karachi KFC bombings. They have both come up. Um, but if you do manage to verify it, please let me know so I can uh, use it again at future radio events. <laughs> In any case, uh, this all leads me to my theme today uh, – President Calvin Coolidge, uh, Calvin Coolidge famously said, the business of America is business. And this maxim has led the United States to all corners of the globe. There's the Transformers in China. There's Harley-Davidson's in Dubai, Miller Beer in Germany. But what about the exports that aren't monetized? Who will celebrate those things that have an impact that can't be measured in billions or even hundreds of dollars? Why, that person would be me, Joe Garden, with the assistance of Onion contributing writer Joe Morris, who will be providing pertinent fact notes uh, or footnotes to my rambling. First up, Santa Claus. Before you jump down my throat, I'd like to acknowledge that Santa Claus is not of U.S. origin per se. He's an amalgam of several figures that drew from uh, St. Nicholas, uh, but that primarily drew from St. Nicholas, who would place gifts in children's stockings hung from the hearth every December 5th. After the Reformation, the Dutch uh, disavowed all Catholic saints, and particularly they tried to ban the celebration of uh, St. Nicholas's holiday. Uh, but when you try to take a gift-giving holiday away from people, people, they don't react very well to it. <laughs> so what they did is they, uh, the Dutch uh, changed the name from St. Nicholas to, uh, where was it again? Uh, oh, here we go. The, the figure Sinterklaas, who would sail from Spain and travel from house to house in the company of Black Pete, distributing spice nuts and candies to good children. <laughs> Black Pete was a devil Sinterklaas had defeated and made to do his bidding, usually depicted by the very Caucasian Dutch as a man in blackface. The legend changed in the 1850s, at which point he became a former slave that Sinterklaas had freed. Dutch parents threatened their children by saying that if they're good, Black Pete will bring them candy and toys, but if they're bad, he'll stuff them in his duffel bag and take them back to Spain. (laughs) 
the early Dutch settlers bought, thought, uh, brought Sinter- Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, the early Dutch settlers brought Santa Claus back with them to the New World, where his name was changed to Santa Claus and the racist sidekick was dropped. An 1863 illustration of Santa Claus by Thomas Nass is generally credited as being the first defining depiction of Santa Claus as the rotund, jolly figure we know today, and Coca-Cola's use of the character cemented him in the American public consciousness. Now he lives in the North Pole, where his elves make the toys he delivers to good children every Christmas Eve. The North Pole is the northernmost part of the world, and is often written on an envelope which contains a child's wishes for Santa. Such wishes may include, please help my parents get back together. Please kill my parents. And gimme, 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 bike, bike, bike. As with most cultural traditions brought to America, he was in short order repackaged as a pitch man and shoved down the throats of every human with two pieces of currency to rub together. All this would be fine and good, but so long as Hollywood makes Santa-themed entertainment and keeps appearing as a show for numerous consumer goods, Santa refuses to be contained by American boundaries. As his popularity grows and spreads across the globe, Santa Claus is in danger of edging out local Christmas figures, and that's not sitting very well with these locals. A school in Brighton, England, banned depictions of Father Christmas in a red suit, saying that it smacked of commercialism. A group of Czech advertising professionals stated uh, started an anti-Santa Claus website uh, to protest the replacement of its own gift-giving figure, uh, pardon my check, Jezelschik. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right, actually. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, great. Uh, which pra- uh, it uh, translates roughly as baby Jesus. And in Austria, the Christ child brings gift to Austrian children, uh, and some of the Austrians mobilized to hand out anti-Santa stickers because they didn't want them to, uh, to dominate. Uh, it seems like a kind of a hopeless battle, though, because the jolly old elf is coming to your land whether you like it or not. My next American export is a little harder to tie down than Santa Claus, but even further reaching. I'm speaking, of course, about syphilis. <laughs> it's very difficult to pinpoint the origin of syphilis. There are no Thomas Nast drawings of the spirochet that causes the disease, nor was it popularized by a soft drink company. It was mostly popularized by the oldest profession in the world. Um, However, medical historians and anthropologists have determined that syphilis didn't exist in Europe prior to the discovery of the New World. When examining skeletal remains of pre-1492 Europeans, there's plenty of evidence of other diseases from the same species as syphilis, such as Pinta and Yaws. God, those are such great disease names, Yaws. (laughs) It sounds so old-timey, but it's also probably very terrifying. Uh, But none that bore the same end results as syphilis, such as the near-destruction of the nasal passage and the formation of Caries Sica. Carius sica is a deformation of the bone that starts as a depression of the outer layer and sometimes the middle layer. When it heals, it leaves a nodule resulting in bony protrusions surrounded by depression. Ew. <laughs> the commonly accepted theory is that venereal syphilis was brought back to Europe by, the member, uh, by members of Christopher Columbus's crew from the Dominican Republic. They left to find a new route to, Sp- uh, to, the, uh, new route to uh, India and instead came back with a disease that can result in madness and death. Even though Ulysses S. Grant wanted to annex the Dominican Republic in 1871, it was rejected by Congress. It is a sovereign nation in the Caribbean, not part of the United States, and it's a stretch to include it in your little speech about American exports. (laughs) That may be true, Jill, but the United States recognizes Columbus Day as a holiday, and as a result, I think it's fair game. It's a new world export. The first documented cases occurred in 1495 in Naples, Italy, after following its invasion by the French. As it was a venereal disease, no one wanted to lay claim to it. It was called the French pox by the Germans and English. The Russians called it the Polish sickness, and the Poles, in turn, called it the German sickness. (laughs) However, it spread and infected such notables as composer Franz Schubert, gangster Al Capone, philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, painter Edward Manet, and possibly Hitler. Though Joe Garden has endured many medical conditions, including appendicitis, mononucleosis, and several nasty flus, he has never contracted syphilis. I had to use this little uh, soapbox to advertise that fact, by the way. <laughs> so this leads us to our next, uh, to our next uh, uh, export, the raccoon. I know. It's sort of a weird... Uh, you don't think of the uh, raccoons as anything as like, you know, if you see them on television or film, they always just sort of look cute. They're fuzzy little bandit masks and grabby little paws are kind of adorable. Uh, they almost look like they have little black human hands. They're very cute. Uh, but anybody who's ever shined a flashlight in a, in a rattling, rustling tree at night and seen their beady little eyes glowering back at you knows that there's something more sinister than a grisly Adam's sidekick within. <laughs> 
The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams was a television show about a man wrongly accused of murder who ran to the mountains and befriended raccoons, a bear, and the guy who played Uncle Jesse on Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> it ran for two seasons in 1977 and 1978. Its star, Dan Haggerty, was arrested for selling cocaine in 1984. <laughs> Indigenous to North America, raccoons can grow to the size of a small dog. Uh, in 2006, they re accounted for nearly 38% of rabies cases reported in the United States, edging out bats and skunks. They made themselves at home in rural and urban environments and are not terribly deterred by the presence of humans. A, cur a cursory search of raccoon plus cat door on YouTube will send you down a rabbit hole of terrifying videos featuring them entering homes to try to steal food. YouTube is a video-sharing website in which users upload their own videos to that others may watch, rate, and comment on them. This joke is originally by Josh Clark in a previous Stuff You Should Know podcast. <laughs> Yes, raccoons are jerks. But did you also know they have a Nazi connection? You should know what Nazis are. <laughs> it's true. Uh, in 1934, a German animal breeder approached the Reich Forestry Office, then headed by Hermann Goering, uh, with a plan to breed the raccoon in order to enrich the local fauna. Uh, the rationale was that they would be popular game for hunters and the, their pel uh, the pelts could be put to good use. What they didn't count on... Uh, was that uh, the, critter, the crafty critter's powers of exponential uh, reproduction. Oh, that's so stupid. God, that was such a, it looks so good on paper, that phrase. I can say it. The crafty critter's powers of exponential reproduction. Thank you. Uh, now there are between 100,000 and a million raccoons in Germany, and they haven't stopped there. They've spread all over the continental Europe and have even crossed the channel through the channel and invaded England. Game over. <laughs> Now, after those three, I would like to end on a... Uh, we're running pretty long, actually, so I apologize for that. I'm uh, doing fine. Are you? <laughs> do, do you need some water? You can I don't know, I'm good. Okay. Uh, I so drank I wanna... some of Wyatt's, so I can get sick later. <laughs> but he was sick. Oh, boy. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, so anyway, I'd like to end on a high note. Uh, Hip-hop. Uh, in my lifetime, there's been no cultural movement that has spread as far and as fast as hip-hop. In fact... Because it's still an art form in motion, and because I'm running very, very long, hip-hop is going to get the short shrift, uh, as usual. Um, it began at parties in the Bronx in the early 1970s. Uh, DJ, or Jamaican-born DJ Cool Herc is considered the father of hip-hop for introducing the concept of rapping over music and breakbeats. Breakbeats are the funkiest instrumental parts of a song that are best suited for dancing. A DJ would isolate the breakbeat on two different turntables to create a dance party that can't stop, won't stop, a hip-hop, hip into the hip, to the hip-hip-hop, and you don't stop rockin'. Uh, it moved slowly out of the Bronx and broke big when the song Rapper's Delight in, uh, charted on the Billboard 100 in 1979. Since then, it's been an unstoppable musical juggernaut, dominating the American charts and consciousness and moving outward. Hip-hop has established itself in the U.K., France, Germany, South Africa, Tanzania, Japan, Indonesia, Argentina, Russia, Poland, and so on and so on. For more information, please consult your local library. <laughs> Thank you all very much. You are wonderful and lovely audience. So that's the end of part one. Yes. And I don't even know where we've cut this yet. Maybe it's a cliffhanger. Or maybe it was just between segments. I'm thinking it's not a cliffhanger. Nah. Mm, probably not. <laughs> we'll see what happened to America. That could be a good cliffhanger. <laughs> that's a great cliffhanger, yeah. Um, so that, like you said, is the end of part one. Uh, join us on, uh, what, Thursday? Yeah. Okay, uh, for, the, for part two. Yes. Coming up next in two days. Or if you've downloaded both of them on Thursday right now. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?